Doesn't it look great in here? Did you, did you notice there's a dance floor over here? I, I, better, I might not go, better should not go on it because I might dance and then I would be distracted. No, if I dance, you would be distracted because it would not be pretty. So, Hey, Christy and her team, I don't think Christy's in here, but they have been working so hard. Can we just say thank you to that team for all that they've been doing these last several weeks, getting ready for tonight? What a great time we're going to have in here together, bringing in the, in the new year. And so we hope, again, if, if, if you came tonight and you weren't thinking about coming, that, that, uh, that you're going to join us. You're going to join us. So, hey, also just a quick note, too, don't, just on a practical perspective, tonight is the 31st, so it's the end of the tax year. So any gifts that you want to give that you expect to be tax deductible, you can't give them tomorrow. Does that make sense? So you, you, it either has to be postmarked by today or turned in by today, or it's going to have to be counted for 2012. So we just wanted to pass that on to you, too. So, all right, here we go. If you, had, if you enjoyed the series, come on, it's been good, hasn't it? We hope that you're leaving this series with a sense of just being empowered that if you feel distant from God, if you feel far from Him, if you just feel a lack of intimacy with God, that, that this series has given you some things that you can do, that you can begin to be intentional about going in to God's presence, being awakened to who He is. We know that He's everywhere all the time, but it's something else to feel close to Him. It's something else to have a sense of intimacy with him. And so every week we've been talking about ways that you can begin to experience the nearness of God. And so tonight we're going to switch it up a little bit because we also know that regardless of what we do, God oftentimes just breaks in on our world, whether we're pursuing him or not whether we're doing the things that this, the Holy Scriptures tell us to do, whether or not we've been practicing the things that we've been learning in this series, God is still sovereign. He's still divine. And there are moments in our lives where He just breaks in on our world. He chooses to be near to us. And we believe, come on, in this coming year, that He's going to, be choose, he's going to choose to be near to you in new ways. Come on, in new ways. And we're going to talk about that together tonight. So this is kind of the big idea that we've been unpacking together in this series, that you and I are desperate for the nearness of God. And of all the ways that we hope to grow in this life, the physical proximity of our Heavenly Father is essential. Our greatest present will always be His presence. Even last week, celebrating Christmas Eve together. Come on, what a great way for us to, we get to be, have Christmas Eve together as a church and we get to have New Year's Eve together as a church. It's just a great holiday season for us. And come on, if you were here last week, any life stories that were shared in last week's service? Were they great or what? Come on. So can we do, let's do our giveaways tonight for our life stories. We'll give one to Rachel because she did a life story. Starbucks gift card. And I don't, is Lynette there? So I'm going to give this to you and you're going to make sure she gets that. Everybody's a witness to that. Yeah. Kevin Tully. All right. All right. We're going to, Lynette's going to go, I don't know anything about a gift card that you gave to my husband, Kevin. So just the life story. If, if, just this idea of people being willing to step up and be vulnerable with their heart, with their story. We want that to be a hallmark of our church. Don't come here and try to hide. You with me? Don't, don't come here and, and say, well, I, I want to keep my story to my... Now, come on, your story is given to you so that you can put it in play, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that it can minister to other people. 
We want to be a congregation where we, we celebrate authenticity, where we celebrate vulnerability. And if you were here for the Christmas Eve service, you know what it meant to you to hear Rachel and Lynette both get up there at different parts of the service and share some deeply personal things about their story and how that enriched your life. And come on, you're supposed to do the same thing for other people. Whether or not you have a microphone in your hand, whether or not you're in front of a crowd of people, that your story is a way that you can begin to encourage other people in their walk with God. And so we thank you all for sharing your story with us last week and to Lynette, who's in there with our kids. So, all right, here's where we're going to be digging in tonight. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to read in verse 4 and then jump over to 8 through 9. As you know, that we've been looking at the Christmas narrative, but we've also been looking at the unique uh, geographic locations that are in the Christmas narrative, and we've been talking about how those specific cities represent things to us that teach us about the nearness of God, and we're going to see that's going to happen again tonight as we look at Bethlehem. So Luke chapter 2, let's read verse 4. It says, And Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the family of the line of David. Now let's jump over to verse 8. In the same region, talking about the region of Bethlehem, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And then an angel of the Lord, sto Lord stood before them, here it comes, and then the glory of the Lord, God himself, come on, was there in the place. It shone around them and they were terrified. Now we've been looking at this before in the in the, in the Nazareth sermon. Got to get my bread positioned up there. Come on for a reason. Does it make anybody hungry when you see that? I should have put a box of donuts up there. Yeah. The tie-in wouldn't have been the same though. But anyways, so we, we, talked about, we looked at this text in, in relation to, to, to Nazareth because we talked about the shepherds being the least of these. So we're going to look at the same text again, but we're going to look at it through the lens of Bethlehem because I believe Bethlehem's in this story for lots of reasons, but for one is because Bethlehem represents this idea of being chosen by God. We're going to look at that a little bit tonight. So Bethlehem, does anybody know what Bethlehem means? It means the house of, I see Lynette doing the happy dance in there because she got a Starbucks gift card. Come on, she's excited. And Kevin did, he did the right thing. He succumbed to the pressure of people around him and passed it on to his wife. So anybody know what Bethlehem means? The house of? It's the city of David, but it's the house of? The house of bread, yes. Yeah, come on. Say so this is just a personal note for me. God, God likes to let us know that we're on the right track. You with me? So here at the Mosaic, there's a food bank, one of the, the highest volume uh, food ministries in the city. It's not the food bank, but they get food from the food bank, and they distribute it here into the Newport News area. And there's always bread out there. That's free for the taking. And so I, I came earlier today, and there were 23 racks of bread. Each stack is 13 high. You've seen those towers of bread they push around, right? You couldn't even get into the lobby, into the lobby. There were 23 of them in there. And so, so they, they pushed all those into the front room. So you can barely move in the front room, which is the place where I like to get together just alone with God and pray in the afternoon before the service. So I'm walking in there praying, you know, for this message, praying for this service. I can barely move. It smells all that bread. There's thousands and thousands of pieces of bread in there. I'm praying about Bethlehem, praying about Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, it was like the Holy Spirit just was speaking to my heart. Hey, you guys, are, you guys have the right message tonight. Bethlehem is the house of bread, and I could barely walk because I was surrounded by it out there in the front of that lobby. And so you know, little things like that, you might say, hey, that's coincidental. No, it's not. 
Come on, it's providential. And that God wants to do little things like that in your life just to let you know he's listening, just to let you know that he understands what you're going through. We all have questions in our life. God, am I doing the right thing? And even if it's just a matter of picking the right theme for the right sermon on the right night, God has unique ways to just showing up and say, hey, you're on the right track. Come on. We believe that in 2012, God's just going to be doing that through the whole year. He's just going to keep showing up for our church and saying, hey, you guys are on the right track. You're doing the right things. And we're going to experience, come on, his presence in our lives in unique ways this coming year. Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, speaking of Jesus, one whose origins are from the distant past. That's talking about the preexistence of Christ. That's what sets him apart. One of the things that sets him apart from any other religious leader that's walked on the face of this earth, come on, is that he lived before he walked upon this earth, the preexistence of Christ. But here in Micah 5.2, we have this, the beginning of the theme of the city of Bethlehem, that Bethlehem of all the cities in Israel was chosen by God to be the birthplace of Jesus. Bethlehem carries with it a symbolic meaning of being chosen. We also see that carrying through scripture by some of the significant moments that happened historically in Israel. When you turn to 1 Samuel 16, 7 through 13, we're not going to read all these verses, but let's just do the first few. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel, and the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. So Samuel said, and then Jesse presented and so forth. So what's happening here in the story? Who's Samuel looking for? Sabra. Come on. Yes, he's looking to anoint the new king for Israel. He's looking for David, and he's working his way down the line. Jesse has all of his sons lined up, but who's not there? They didn't even invite David to the party, right? He's in Nazareth. He's the least of these. He's a shepherd. There's there's just nothing good about his life from the outside, visibly, that others would say he's going to be the next king of Israel. But Samuel works his way down the line, person after person after person, and every son he gets to, he thinks to himself, surely this must be the one, and God every time says, no, he's not. So he gets to the end, and he says, surely there has to be another, another son said, yeah, but he can't be the one, right? As he comes and God speaks to Samuel's heart, he's chosen to be the next king, even as a young teenager of the greatest nation in history during his day. In the city of Bethlehem, a place of choosing. And if we're not careful, we'll read texts like this, and this is what we'll say. We'll do what maybe those sons did. I wish God would choose me like that, Right? Sometimes we hear stories about other great things that God has done in people's lives, and if we're not careful, we posture ourselves as a victim. Maybe you were here last week for the Christmas story, and, and, and Rachel and Lynette are up there sharing how they've had these incredible encounters with God recently, and maybe you let your heart go to a place where you said, I wish God would do that for me. If we're not careful, we begin to feel excluded when we see other people being included. And it's one of the great barriers, I believe, to experiencing the nearness of God in in our lifetimes. It says, in the kingdom of God, moments of inclusion are not intended to create feelings of exclusion. The other cities, the other brothers are supposed to be inspired to wait well for their own moment of being chosen. 
What's supposed to happen in moments like that, when other cities hear that Micah the prophet is proclaiming that Bethlehem's going to be chosen, they're not supposed to feel excluded. They're supposed to say, come on, if that's what God has in store for Bethlehem, I can't wait to find out what he has in store for me. What the other sons of Jesse were supposed to be saying is, hey, maybe God's not chosen me to be the next king of Israel, but come on, he's chosen me to do something, and I can't wait to find out what it is. Even though in the text it uses the word rejected, it doesn't mean that he's rejected them personally. It means that he rejected them for that purpose. It means that he rejected them for that calling because it wasn't their calling. It wasn't their purpose. That belonged to David. And if we're not careful growing up in the church, we read all these books, we hear all these stories, and people give these incredible testimonies, and we're watching it on certain channels, and then we, we, we start to feel like a victim. We start to say, why is God doing all those great things for them and he's not doing anything for me? When that whisper begins to come into our ear, hopefully you're going to, excuse me, hear something tonight. Hopefully, hopefully you're going to find a verse tonight. That's why I have water in this cup. There we go. Hopefully you're going to hear something tonight where you can say back to that whisper, hey, get out of my head. Just as he's chosen them, he's chosen me. Just as they're a Bethlehem, I'm a Bethlehem. My Bethlehem moment might look different from theirs, but I've got one coming because my God knows my name. He's going to show up in my life, and I'm going to experience his presence. I am a candidate for supernatural, otherworldly, open heaven, God-initiated divine encounters. God is going to choose to be near to me. I'm going to have Bethlehem moments with my God. We've written this phrase so that you can take it, you can adopt it, you can make it your own. And I hope that you just begin, to, you, that you learn this, that, that you memorize it. And come on, just all throughout next year, you're just going to wake up some mornings. You're going to say, I'm a candidate. I'm a candidate for supernatural, otherworldly, open heaven, God-initiated divine encounters. You're going to hear somebody else telling some story about how God broke into their world and that you're not going to say, well, I wish God would do that for me. Come on, you're going to hear that story. It's going to inspire faith in your own life. And you're going to say, come on, he's going to do something like that for me. It might look different. It might be in a different setting. It might be in a different place, in a different way. But come on, it's going to be a moment where you say, God has broken into my world. I don't care who you are, who you walked into this place as tonight. You're a candidate for God to break in on your world. You are a Bethlehem to him. So I want to look at three reasons why we adopt and embrace a feeling of exclusion, why these feelings of exclusion come to us. The first one I want to look at is this idea of being stuck in shame. You might say, Fred, I, I, I like what you're saying tonight. It, it, it's kind of, it, it's inspiring, but you don't know my story. You don't know what I've done. It might be that you're saying you don't know what I haven't done because we know that sometimes shame comes not because of mistakes that we've made, but because of the good that we didn't do that we know that we should have. Whichever one it is for you, it might be that, that, that you're not experiencing the nearness of God in your life because you've postured yourself in this, this place of being a victim, and what you don't know is that God has, just, has been knocking at your door for years, and you just haven't been answering because you don't even realize that he's coming after you. We want you to be free, come on, from that shame tonight that you can say it doesn't matter what's in my past. I can't change that, but I know what's waiting for me in my tomorrows and that God is going to have a Bethlehem moment waiting for me. Genesis 28, 10 through 16, it says, Jacob left Beersheba. He went toward Haran. 
And he reached a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones from the place and he put it there at his head and he lay down in that place and he, he dreamed and a stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching heaven and God's angels were going up and down on it and Yahweh himself, come on, was standing there beside him. Let's read the rest of that story. Lord was standing there beside him. Listen to what God says to him. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Jacob. And I will give you and your offspring the land that you are now sleeping on. Your offspring will be as the dust of the earth. And that doesn't mean that they're going to be insignificant. He's talking about how numerous they're going to be. And you will spread out toward the west and the east and the north and the south. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your, and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I'm with you. Come on, his nearness. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God, which is why that city became Bethel, the house of God, this is the gate of heaven, he says. Come on, God wants to break in on your I didn't know he was here moments. All the things that we've looked at in this series, the intentionality that we can bring to certain places where God says, you're going to find me there. Like when we talked about going into places and being among people who are under-resourced, where Jesus said, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. We know that there's a nearness of God that we begin to experience when we begin to reach out and minister to those who are impoverished. But here in this story, we just find something different. This one and the two others that we're going to look at tonight, where God says, I don't care where it is. I don't care what it looks like. You could be in the middle of the desert, and the only thing that you can find for your head for a pillow is a stinking rock. I can show up there, and you will wake up saying, this must be the gate of heaven, that he will break in on your world. Each one of us here tonight, I'm telling you, you're chosen by God, you're a Bethlehem, and in your year in 2012, we hope that we will stir up inside of you an appetite to say, you know what, he's chosen me. I'm a candidate, come on, for otherworldly, supernatural, open heaven moments, that we're supposed to read these stories like Jacob and say, if he did it for him, he's going to do it for me. And if you're here tonight and you're saying, I don't think he's going to do it for me, Fred, because you don't know what I've done. Well, if he did it for Jacob, when he did it for Jacob, there's no reason why he won't do it for you. Because what we know is the reason why Jacob is on his way to Haran is because he's just conspired with his mother to deceive his father while he's on his deathbed to manipulate a blessing that was intended for Esau. And not only that, but years before, when his brother Esau came out from the fields and hunting, he's famished. He took advantage of a vulnerable person, and in that moment, he took his birthright. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's contributing to the delinquency of the others, especially if you're going to contribute to the delinquency of anybody in your life, please do not let it be your own mother. You with me? He's got a rap sheet a mile long. So if you're here tonight and you're saying, you don't know what I've done, I don't know what you've done, but I know what he did, and you know what he did, and if God can forgive him, he can forgive you, and if he can be a Bethlehem, then you can too. 
There is no reason for us to be stuck in our shame. It's one of the great weapons that the devil has that he lords over us as he just keeps reminding us of what we've done over and over. For some of you, it's like a motion picture that's playing through your mind day in and day out. And God wants you to find a sense of confidence and a sense of courage to say to that reel that keeps playing, I'm unplugging that projector. I cannot change who I used to be, but I know this, even though I am Jacob today and I'm going to be a Jacob tomorrow, that God is going to show up because I'm a Bethlehem to him. I'm a Bethlehem to him. Isaiah 57b through 9a says, I know that I will not be put to shame. He who gives me justice is near, talking about God, the nearness of God, even when we don't deserve it. Who will dare to bring charges against me now? Where are my accusers? Isaiah is not talking about a person who's innocent. Isaiah is not talking about a person who's got a clean record. Isaiah is not talking about the kind of person who hasn't made any mistakes in life. Isaiah is talking about a person who's made lots of mistakes. He's talking about Israel here. And what he's saying is that God is my judge. And if anybody's going to bring accusations against me, it's going to be my heavenly father. And yes, there are going to be times where he steps in to punish us. As we like to use in our household when we're talking to our children, you've got to learn your lesson. Sometimes God says to us, you've got to learn your lesson but he never punishes us with the absence of his presence. He never punishes us with the absence of his presence. He is always near. And in your life and in my life, when we look at mistakes we've made or maybe mistakes that we've just made recently, if we're not careful, we will begin to believe the report of our accusers instead of the report of our God. And Isaiah 50, and Isaiah also talks about in the first chapter, though our sins be as scarlet, they'd be white as snow, they'd be as red as crimson, they would be as lamb's wool. God is going to forgive you of everything that you've done. He's going to forgive you of everything that you're going to do. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what your story is. There's a Bethlehem waiting for you in your tomorrows. He says, let them appear. Let them appear. See, the sovereign Lord is on my side. Who will declare me guilty? Who will declare me guilty? God wants to show up in places and in situations and circumstances where you would say, as Jacob said, I did not even know he was here. And in those moments, he's going to reveal himself to you in such profound ways that you're going to say to yourself, come on, in aisle 14 at Walmart, this must be the gate of heaven. <laughs> he might say to you as you're stuck in a traffic jam in the monitor, Mary Mac, right? And in that moment, that could be, you could have a Jacob's Ladder moment. I'm telling you, be looking in 2012 for God to break in on your world in ways and in places where it catches you off guard because he wants you to know that he's chosen you. He wants to be near to you. He wants to bring those moments to your life. He wants you to live your life in such a way where this statement, come on, is written as it says in Proverbs on the table of your heart. I am a candidate for supernatural, otherworldly, open heaven, God-initiated divine encounters. God is going to choose to be near to me that I'm going to have Bethlehem moments with my God. All right, stuck in rejection. We can get stuck in shame. We can also get stuck in a place of rejection. Shame is often connected to self-perception. Rejection is often connected to what other people have spoken over us. 
and that we begin to believe what they have said, especially people of influence. It could be spiritual leaders, it could be parents, it could be grandparents, it could have been a teacher that someone said something to you in your past like you're never going to amount to anything. Sometimes they did it out of their own frustration, sometimes they spoke out of their own pain, and all of a sudden that begins to be what we call a script that begins to operate in your life. And it causes you in moments like what we're talking about tonight to posture yourself as being one who's excluded instead of having hope and faith to being one who's included. So let's talk about this idea of being stuck in rejection. In Mark 9, verses 1 through 8, Mark 9, verses 1 through 8, come on, we're looking at three open heaven moments. I like to call them threshold moments in Scripture. It says, and he said to them, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God in power. Verse 2, it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Come on, it's a Bethlehem moment. They were chosen. He was transformed in front of them. Speaking of Jesus, his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launder on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles or tents, and one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Come on, he's saying, we don't even need one for ourselves. We just want to be in the presence of our God. Because he did not know what he should say since they were terrified. And a cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son, speaking of Jesus. Listen to him. And then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. It's a Bethlehem moment. Now, you might look at that and say, well, shh, of course he did that for Peter, James, and John, but who am I? Who, who am I? My life doesn't have the significance that their life did. I, 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 don't, I don't have the potential that they must have had. They, you know, they, were, they, they must have been just the, come on, the all-star spiritually of their day from the beginning, and that's why God chose them, and that's why they're, they're part of this exclusive crowd of people that have qualified for these Bethlehem moments, but I'll never be a, a person like that. And as we begin to look into the story of Scripture, we love talking about these three things at the City Life Church, these three steps of rabbinical training, because at age six, Every single boy in Israel, he went off to a rabbinical school. Because every single family in Israel in Jesus' day, their great dream was that their son was going to become a rabbi. So at age six, they're sent off to school. And at age six, they memorize the first five books of the Bible. Can you believe it? Verbatim. We're not memorize what the first five books of the Bible are. You tracking? You're saying, oh, I can do that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. No, no, no. Every verse, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, starting at the age of six, memorized it all. I would think if they could do that alone, I'd be like, okay, you should be a rabbi if you can remember all that. But not, this, not so. At age 10, they sort them out. Anybody go out for high school sports, right? Not the ones where everybody made it. I tended to gravitate towards the sports where there was no cutting involved. It's part of my strategy. Because if you went out for the sports where there was a cut, at some day you would have to go to a place in the school where what would be posted? Yeah, yeah, a list. And, not, and you didn't want to see, now depending on what your school, sometimes they listed the people who were cut or sometimes they listed the people who made it. But 
If you've been around schools or sports, you know what it's like for your name not to be on the list. So around the age of 10, some of these boys, their names weren't on the list. The rabbi would say, I don't really think that you've got what it takes. But those that would be passed on to Beit Talmud, you know what they would start doing? Memorizing all the rest of the Old Testament. All 39 books, right? I just said, just give me a hammer, I'll be a carpenter, right? All 39 books, every single verse. They didn't have any apps or any iPhones. It's all in here. They knew it all by heart. And even then, somewhere in their early teens, they might not make it to the third level. Beit Midrash, the rabbi would say, I don't really think you've got what it takes. Go and ply your father's trade. And then of this last group, of the last group, They would apply to be a disciple of a rabbi, and there would be one more cut. But those that demonstrated the most promise, those that that the rabbi would look and say, I think you can do what I do, he would say to them, come and follow me. That's why those words that Jesus chose, as you read in the New Testament, had such meaning. You look at that and say, why would they leave everything just because some stranger says, come and follow me? Now, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a self-initiated rabbi. That's another message for another time. But when he said, come and follow me, they understood what that meant. They were getting a second chance to fulfill a dream. They were chosen. I don't know if you like Rob Bell or not. He says a lot of controversial things, and whether or not you, where you fall with his theological statements, you cannot deny that he breaks open the history of the Bible like few others do. And all of this comes by a book that, that he wrote years ago, Velvet Elvis. And what's fascinating when we look at this is that every one of those disciples at some point sat in front of a rabbi, and you know what that rabbi said to them? You don't have what it takes. That's why Peter, James, and John were fishing with their father when Jesus wandered by because they had been rejected by a spiritual leader in their hometown for not having what it took to be a spiritual leader in their own right. It's interesting, isn't it? None of those rabbis were on the Mount of Transfiguration with with Christ. Where were they? And you know what's even more fascinating? That at some point, because Jesus was a self-appointed rabbi, that at some point there was a rabbi who set Jesus down. Jesus, I hate to be the one to have to break this news to you, but you don't really have what it takes to be like me. You know what I think Jesus was thinking? I am so glad for that. (laughs) Come on, Jesus himself. He was a carpenter. Why, Why does the Bible give us that detail? Because God wants us to know that even he, by the world's standards, by the world's assessment, was rejected. And you look at your own life and you say, I don't have what it takes. And maybe that's a true statement for some things. It's a true statement. I, I do not have what it takes to be up there and do what they do for this worship team. We, do we not have an incredible worship team at this church or what? Come on, we can all say certain things. I don't have what it takes to do that and fill in the blank. I do not have what it takes to do what David Godwin's going to do on that dance floor later on tonight, right? I don't have what it takes. Or Tim Rogers, for that matter, if you're here in for a treat. But what you cannot say, what I cannot say, I do not have what it takes to be a Bethlehem. I do not have what it takes for God to break in on my world. What you cannot say is that I am not not a candidate for supernatural 
otherworldly, open heaven, God-initiated divine encounters. You are a Bethlehem to God. I do not care what anybody has spoken over you in your life. Come on, you are a candidate for the nearness of God. He's chosen you. That little phrase at the bottom there was something that kept just stirring in my heart all week is that the assessment of others does not dictate the boundaries of your godly assignment. The assessment of others does not dictate the boundaries of your godly assignment. All of us have an assignment. All of us have a destiny that's going to be filled with Bethlehem moments where he breaks in on our world. And all of us have certain limitations of what we're going to accomplish. We might not all be, and probably none of us will be, the next Billy Graham of the world. Different people have different measures of fame that they're called to walk in, and most of us might not walk in those types of moments. But it doesn't mean that it's any less significant what we've called to, because if it's the assignment that God has given to us, then it's important. The measure to which we're celebrated in heaven is not the measure to which we're celebrated in this world. The measure to which we're celebrated in heaven is the degree to which we have embraced the destiny that we've been given us and fulfilled it with all of our heart, with great determination and faith and enthusiasm. It does not matter the assessment that other people have spoken over to you. It is irrelevant when it comes to the assignment that God has given you. And part of your assignment and part of my assignment is for God to break in on our world and for us to wake up in a moment, whether it's a true sleep or just a spiritual slumber, and say, this is the gateway to heaven. Okay, come on, let's look at one more. Stuck in unbelief. You might say, well, you don't know how obscure my life is, which we've just started to talk about a little bit, setting up this last one. Stuck in a place of unbelief. So you can get stuck in a place of shame. You can get stuck in a place of rejection. And you can get stuck in a place of unbelief, which are all things that cause you to posture yourself as a victim, posturing yourself as I'm excluded because I hear about all the ways that God has included other people. Come on, God's included each of us, and we need to break out of our unbelief. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. This boasting will do no good. This is the Apostle Paul. He's just finished talking about all the ways that he's suffered. If you open up this chapter, all the ways that he's suffered to bring the gospel to the world. He's been an evangelist. It says, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. Come on, this is another Bethlehem moment, the glory of the Lord. He says, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Now, some translations say there was a man, but I agree, and, and, and lots of other scholars will, 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 will have this pathway of interpretation that he's really talking about himself. And he speaks about a man because he's trying to posture himself in a place of humility. But I believe, too, that Paul was talking about his own life. And the New Living Translation just goes, he just goes ahead and translates it this way. It says, I was caught up to a, the third heaven. Now, why does he use the third heaven here? Because to a Jewish audience, that would have had significance because they believed in a, right, the temple. And the temple had several courts. But the innermost court, the holiest of holies, the third most innermost court was the place where God himself dwelt. And so they talked about, in a heavenly sense, they trying to transpose the idea of an earthly temple into the heavenlies to help them grasp it with the limitations of the human mind. So they would say there's the first heaven, which is just the sky. There was the second heaven where they understood that, that that's where the angelic beings existed. But then there's the third heaven, which was kind of the holiest of holies of the heavenly. It was the place where the spirit of God himself was. So Paul is being very specific here. He's saying, hey, I'm just not talking about just being around God and viewing him from a distance. I'm talking about being in the throne room of the heavens. That's what Paul's saying when he says the third heaven. 
And he says, 14 years ago, we're going to talk about why he gives us that detail. I believe it's incredibly important. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. It's a threshold moment. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside of my body, but I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. I'm going to tell I've never had an experience like that in all the years that I've been a follower of Christ, but I'll tell you this. I wake up every day saying, come on, today could be my day. There should be something inside of us of all the Bethlehem moments that we've had, and I'm trusting that some of you have already had some. You've already had moments where God has broken in on your world. This is the other side of it, is that we don't get stuck in a place of mediocrity where we say to God, God, the way that you've revealed yourself to me, oh, come on, it's just enough already. There should be something inside of us that is grateful. There should be something inside of us that celebrates the ways that God has broken into our world. But there should also be something inside of us that says, come on, God, I want more of you. I want the deeper things. And there should be something inside of us that says, if you did this for Paul, surely you could do this for me. Now you might say, but Fred, it's the apostle Paul. Come on. He was chosen by God to give us the majority of the New Testament. He's one of the greatest, if not the most significant figure in the history of the church for 2,000 years. And you might read this story and say, of course he did it for Paul, but he's not going to do it for me because my life has lived in such obscurity. I'm just, I'm nobody. And I think that's why Paul picks this particular instance. I don't think this is the only time that Paul had incredible encounters with God, but I think he picks the one that happened 14 years ago because he was leaving a a clue for us so that when we would read it ourselves, that we could say, even if my life is being lived in utter obscurity, surely God might do this for me. We talk about the chronological context of the Bible here at the City Life Church. It's important. 2 Corinthians was written around AD 56, So when Paul was writing this letter, if you back up 14 years, you get to AD 42. Now that's important for us because we know from the story of the book of Acts that Luke gives to us that in AD 34 that Paul's in Damascus. In fact, he was on the road to Damascus where Jesus encountered him right in a bright light. He's blinded. He's challenged because then he was still Saul of Tarsus. He was persecuting the church. This is the moment of his conversion in AD 34. He goes to Damascus and soon after that, if you follow the timeline, he goes into Arabia and he lives there, kind of in isolation for the next three years of his life. He goes back to Damascus in AD 37 and for the next 10 years, they're called Paul's silent years. You and I know who Paul is, but the, he, was, he was just a nobody for those 10 years. Paul's life doesn't really come onto the scene of history until A.D. 47 when God speaks to Barnabas and sends him to retrieve him from Damascus. And that kind of begins the journey of the Apostle Paul that all of you, we know the end of the story. But if we look into the middle of the story, it's in those 10 years that the Apostle Paul, who wasn't even an apostle then, right? He's just Paul. He's just the guy from town that loves God. And it was in the middle of that time in his life. It was in the middle of that. He had not done anything. In fact, the only thing that he had a reputation for at that point in his life was murdering Christians. And it was yet in that season that God broke in on his world and took him up to the third heaven, to a place of paradise. 
I do not care how obscure my life is or how obscure your life is. Our obscurity, our lack of popularity does not dictate to God whether or not he breaks in on our world. You're a candidate. You're a Bethlehem. You're chosen. And he wants you to be defined in this life by a person who has an appetite for supernatural encounters, for threshold moments. Faith is a certainty. It's a conviction. It's a confidence. It's a godly assurance. Regardless of whatever evidence and circumstances there might be to the contrary. That's the very essence of what faith is. It's not looking to our outward circumstances to be proved. There's just something inside of us that says, I know that it's true because God spoke it to my heart. Even if the rest of the world says we're crazy, even if the rest of the world says to us, that's never going to happen to you what happened to Paul. Come on, we say, come on, I have faith that it's going to happen for me. And I'm going to live out my days with a conviction that says, God, I want more of who you are. And then I'm a Bethlehem to you. You've chosen me. I'm a candidate for divine encounters. Let me give you a few verses for faith. Romans 10, 17 and Hebrews 11, 1 are arguably two of the most significant verses in the Bible that speak to faith because we don't want to get stuck in a place of unbelief. Romans 10, 17 says, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. And you might be here tonight and say, well, Fred, I, I read the Bible a lot, but I always feel like I'm lacking faith. Or maybe you know people who, who just, they just always in God's word, but they never seem to have much faith about their life. It's because Romans 10, 17 can't be understood apart from Romans 11, 1. We understand the Bible in light of itself. Romans 11, Hebrews 11, 1 says, faith is the substance of things, what? Hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. And what we begin to see as we put these things together is that the only way that faith forms in us from reading Scripture is if we read with a hope that the promise is there in order for us. If you, you can read this book and there might be a glimpse of faith that begins to form in you, but if you begin to read this book, as we want you to read this book, where you begin to say, if he did it for them, he's going to do it for me. When you begin to read this book and all the promises that are in here and say, hey, come on, that's just not a promise for Mary. That's just not a promise for King David. That's just not a promise for Obadiah. That's not just a promise for Peter. It's a promise for Fred. It's a promise for Warren. Come on. It's a promise for Hannah. That you begin to read that Bible where you say, God has written this letter to me. These are my promises. You have a hope that what he's saying, he's saying to you. And when you begin to step into that place, you'll begin to feel faith begins to rise up in your heart like never before. Romans 4, 20 through 21 says, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promises. Come on, he had a hope that they were for him. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Another translation renders it, that I am fully convinced that that which God has promised, he is also able to perform. Come on, for me, for you. Look at this one, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. This is Paul writing again. For we live by believing and not by seeing. In some translations, I walk by faith, not by sight. I walk by faith and not by sight. Look at this one, 2 Corinthians 4.13. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke, which is quoting Psalm 116.10. And I love how the Apostle Paul renders this interpretation because when you turn to Psalm 116.10 and read it, it says the psalmist states that because I believed in God, I took my complaint to him. And what Paul's trying to say to us is, hey, come on, this is the fill-in-the-blank moment in Scripture. It doesn't just mean that, that if you believe in God, you can take your complaint. It means that if you believe in God, come on, fill in the blank. 
If you believe in God, then fill in the blank. Paul's saying if you believe, if you have faith, if you believe that these promises that are in this book, whatever that promise might be, you fill in the blank. And one of the ways that we're filling in the blank tonight is that we better believe that we are a Bethlehem to our God, that you're a candidate for divine encounters. Listen to this verse in Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. It says, dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. The writer of Hebrews is talking about how they suffered for the gospel, and they're saying, hey, just because we've suffered doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to suffer too. But we are, we are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation, for God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Verse 11, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. It's powerful, isn't it, that God connects love to the fulfillment of the things that you hope for in this life. Hope is not a human sentiment. Hope is just as sacred as faith. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that faith, hope, and love are the three that are going to remain. The three eternal virtues and hope is right there with the top three of faith, hope, and love. Come on. He says, yes, love is the greatest, but come on. Hope's right up there. There has to be something inside of us that says, God, I hope. I hope. Not in the sense that the world says it, but in the sense that Jesus would say it. I hope because I know that these promises are for me. And then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and their endurance. I am a candidate, come on, for the supernatural. For otherworldly, open heaven, God-initiated divine encounters, God is going to choose to be near to me, and I'm going to have Bethlehem moments with my God. Stand with me as I read these last verses to you. Bethlehem, come on, the house of bread. Listen to these verses here. Come, if you want to get some verses to sink your teeth into for 2012, Psalm 145, I'm going to start reading in verse 14 down to 21. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you, O God, and you give them their food in their due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him. All who call out to him in truth. The truth of what? The truth that you believe that you're a candidate. He fulfills the desires of all who fear him. He hears their cry for help and he saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let everything, every living thing, praise his holy name forever and ever. Oh God, we speak over our own lives today that we're candidates. We're candidates for supernatural, otherworldly, open heaven, God-initiated divine encounters. We believe that just as the psalmist wrote here, that you are the one that satisfies every desire worth having in this life. And, oh God, let it be for all of us here tonight 
moving forward in 2012 and beyond, that one of our greatest desires would be for you to break in on our world. Of all the ways that we're going to pursue you, of all the ways that we're going to step in with great intentionality to be near to you as we learn through this sermon series, that we would say tonight, oh God, even if we fail, even if we falter, God, that you're not going to leave us languishing to ourselves, just as you did for Jacob, just as you did for Peter, James, and John, just as you did for Paul. We read those stories with a sense of hope that gives birth to faith in our hearts that you're going to do that for each of us. As we get to the end of 2012, Father, we celebrate all the stories that have yet to be told that will be then of all the Bethlehem moments that will break in on our world at the City Life Church. In Jesus' name, and everybody said together, Amen. 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 Christy's going to come now and give us some important.